We're thankful again for another opportunity to study the Word of God together. Thankful for each of you that listen, and we hope and pray that the Word of God can be a help to you. Hope you've enjoyed our uh, study of John chapter 3. Uh, I always enjoy doing these and taking a, a deep dive into these scriptures. Um, so, Lord willing, we may finish John chapter 3 today. Um, we got down last time to about verse number 30, and John the Baptist answered to the question that the Jews and his disciples brought up. So the Jews came to John's disciples and said, Look, Jesus is baptizing now, and it looks like you all are in direct competition, and it looks like Jesus is winning the race. It looks like he has far more followers and uh, this made the disciples of John, no question, to be envious for John's sake. And they desired uh, for John to be the best, just as uh, anyone else would. But John the Baptist, a man commissioned and sent by God for this very mission, his wisdom that the Holy Ghost gave him caused him to realize this is not a race, it's not a competition, this is... Uh, God's mission for him, it was to be the forerunner, that John would begin this work, preaching repentance and baptizing, and that this work would be left to Jesus when he was deceased. So John knew that this was the will of God. And you know, realizing this, and we covered last time, and we were, we're not going to go into too great a depth, but whether it's John the Baptist preaching and baptizing, or Jesus' disciples that's preaching and baptizing. If God's in the work, then the work of God's being accomplished. That's what John the Baptist saw. That's what he was telling his disciples. Look, whether we're getting followers and they're coming to us or they're coming to Jesus, the work of God's being done. Don't be envious and don't despise for another man's success if it's of the Lord, but be glad and rejoice. So John says, we closed last time looking at the the little parable that he gave of the bridegroom and the bride and the best man. It wasn't John's place to have the church. He was just a best man. He was honored to have the position to be a servant of the bridegroom. He was honored to have part in the service in the wedding. But he was not the one to get the bride. That was Jesus. And it's important that men, and I say this carefully, but not get a too high view of self and exalt self above measure, realizing that we're just servants to the bridegroom and that the church doesn't belong to a man, but the church belongs to Christ. So he says in verse 30 <clears throat> some very wise words. He must de I must decrease. I'm sorry, I got it backwards. This is John 3, verse 30. He must increase but I must decrease. So John the Baptist says the mission is that my ministry decreases and his ministry increases. And you know, you could look at that in so many ways and apply that to every individual from the pastor and leader of the church and the preacher of the gospel down to the, uh, to the least saved one in the house. The goal is that we would decrease and that Christ 
would increase. And in order for that to be, you know, if you understand hydraulics, when you push in the brake of your car, it decreases, but the brake increases. And it must be. In order for one to go up, the other has to go down. In order for the amount of water in a cup to go up, then whatever's in there, you're going to have to pour it out. And you can only get so much in there. Well, as man, as a man would step behind the pulpit, if he's not going to get out of the way, but he's going to do what he sees fit, what he thinks is necessary and what he needs, what he thinks will work, and he's unwilling to get out of the way of the Holy Ghost, then what's God going to be able to accomplish through him? But John the Baptist says, it's my mission that I would decrease and exalt the name of the Savior. And that ought to be the desire of every person that labors in the kingdom of God. Don't labor for you to be seen. Don't labor that you would get any glory. But remember, the mission, the commission that God's gave us is that Jesus would increase, His kingdom would be spread, His rule and reign would be done, His work would be accomplished, and that we would decrease. So must means it is necessary as binding. So it is necessary that Jesus increase. That is the goal. That is the mission. So uh, the glory then of the wedding, you don't come to see the best man. You don't come to see the wedding party. You know, they, they play a part. But the marriage, the glory of the wedding ceremony is to the couple that's being married. That's where the focus and the attention is. It's upon those that are being married and it's that that ought to be the focus of the church today is not on self, not on individuals, but that we might focus on the Son of the living God because He is that that's going to redeem those which are sinners. He should be exalted and we should decrease. You, you want to testify, we'll realize you're going to have to decrease. Christ must increase. In Malachi, we can see uh, the prophecies of John the Baptist and his mission. In Malachi chapter 3, Verse number 1. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek shall come suddenly to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom you delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. So the messenger, the messenger's needful, the messenger's necessary, the messenger comes before the Lord, but the messenger is just that. He is the messenger. In chapter 4, verse 4 of Malachi, Remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel, with statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. He shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, 
lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. So the message here, the messenger that's to come, and you know, you, you think about it like this, Jesus being the very Son of God, and God having the ability to put a plan together in any way that he saw fit, chose for this to be the case, that there would be a forerunner that would come preaching before Jesus came on the scene. Well, you know, that's how it works today. There is a forerunner. There's a messenger. That's the gospel. No focus on any man whatsoever. John the Baptist was the man that was the forerunner of Jesus. But today, the forerunner of Jesus before the salvation would be received of any individual would be the gospel. Without the gospel today, there's no salvation. In Romans 10, I believe we can see it just as that. I, I know it's written in order as he's covering here, but to look at it backwards would be to get the same message. So in verse 15, How shall they preach except they be sent? How shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they believe in him of whom they've not heard? How shall they call on him in whom they've not believed? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So to get to the place of calling on the name of the Lord for salvation, there must be a preacher who is sent, who's preaching the gospel. They, it must be heard and it must be believed. Before there can ever be a calling on the name of the Lord to be saved, there's an order, there's a forerunner that comes to prepare the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That can come through any man's voice that's been sent of God. That can come as God sees fit to them that are lost. But you can't call on the name of the Lord for salvation without the gospel, the hearing of the gospel, and the believing of the gospel. It must be in its proper order, just as John had to come before Jesus preaching. It was prophesied of. God said, I'm going to send my messenger. I'm going to send one preaching, prepare the way of the Lord. In Isaiah, I'm going to send my messenger that's going to bear witness. And in John chapter 1... He says just exactly that in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. The same came for a witness, to bear witness of the light, that all men through him might believe. He was not but light, but he was sent to bear witness of the light. So God's order <clears throat> was that John would bring the gospel that Christ Jesus could come on the scene. What's the job of the preacher today? To preach the gospel that the Lord Jesus can come on the scene. Now man gets twisted up in his mind sometimes that, well, we're going to have to preach this scripture or we've got to preach a message in this way to target them that are lost that they would come to Jesus. That's not the case. The case is, preach the gospel, just preach the word of God, be the forerunner, don't get your hands in the midst, don't get your mind in the midst, but preach the word of God and Jesus can come on the scene amidst the preaching of the word. Don't exalt your position above measure. You're the messenger, 
the carrier of the gospel. God help us to carry the gospel. But let the Lord Jesus do the rest of the work. It's dangerous. Dangerous to assert oneself and oneself way. What we ought to do is decrease. Let the Lord Jesus increase. So, in order for us to decrease, he says in Isaiah chapter 9, now this is a prophecy of the kingdom of God, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So, you know, you've got that in the, the service of God, in the preaching of the gospel, the man's got to get out of the way that the Holy Ghost can have his way and God help us to do so. This may be a little off topic, but some scripture that has been with me for several years now. Paul says, I preach not with enticing words of man's wisdom. I believe that is a very dangerous habit that we've formed in our world today. That going beyond just preaching the word and what's on the page, men are trying to entice people to come to Jesus. But Paul said, I didn't preach with enticing words, lest your faith would stand in man and not in the power of God. So that tells me that if I use enticing words and I get people to come, where their faith is is in me. God help preach the gospel. Do not entice people to come. God will entice them. God will save them. God will draw them. You just decrease and let the Lord increase. <clears throat> but this applies as well to saved people. That my will and way must decrease in order for Him to increase. If you would like the Lord to have more way over your life, this is the formula. You decrease and He'll increase. But no, as long as I'm having my way, how can he have his? I mean, that, that's just not how that works. So that of the increase of his government, and we've got this picture also in Matthew chapter number 13, verse number 31. We've got these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like to a grain of mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field which indeed is the least of all seeds, but when it's grown, it's the greatest among herbs, and becometh a tree, so that the birds of the air come and lodge in the branches thereof. Another parable spake he unto them, The kingdom of heaven is like unto leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal, till the whole was leavened. So, two pictures there. And what's happening? There's a growing of the kingdom of God. In one place it begins as a little insignificant seed, but when that's planted it becomes the greatest herb in the garden. Another, it's a picture of leaven. When you look at that little handful of leaven that's going into this giant lump of dough, it's insignificant. But when you put it in there and hide it, that leaven takes over the whole dough. The whole dough 
becomes leavened so that the kingdom of God is like that. When somebody is truly saved and born again, when the kingdom of God is truly planted in an individual's heart, that kingdom will by nature overcome the life of that individual. Do you know why that the kingdom of God is not growing in people? It's because it's not planted there. I realize that is a hard saying, but friends, if there's no growing being taking place in an individual's life, know this, there's no salvation. Are they decreasing? Is God overcoming? Is there a power working in their life that's bringing them more and more under subjection of the Word of God, of the Kingdom of God? Is the little mustard seed that was planted when they came to the altar, has it overcome their garden? Has the leaven begun to take over the rest of the dough? If there's no increase of his government, then his kingdom has not been placed in that heart. There's no way this kingdom grows. He must. It's binding that he increases and that I decrease. That's the natural growth of the kingdom of God. Now, God leaves me a battle to fight. He does. He leaves you a battle to fight if you're saved. There's a war to fight against our flesh. But that's a war we can't win on our own, isn't it? Certainly it is a war that we can't win. But you know, His grace is there as well. And He overcomes us. He subdues us. Because greater is He that's within us than He that's within the world. And yet you've got people that are convinced that they're saved, and yet they can live and do how they want, and there's no power to subdue them, and the government of this Savior is not increasing. Something is wrong, and it's not wrong with the salvation of Jesus. What's wrong is they've never been saved. Their profession is a lie from the very beginning. Perhaps they were enticed into the altar and their faith stood in the wisdom of men. It was the wisdom of man that got them to come. And they made a little profession and they got up as lost as they were when they went down. God's never changed them and yet they're convinced that they're saved. You see the danger of enticing man? Very dangerous. God help us, preach the word, let God entice and draw. Do not entice people to the altar. Now that's very contradictory to the way the church is operated today. Sadly, enticement and the drawing of man is what gets people today and their faith is no more in Jesus Christ than a uh, atheist in a pagan world. They're just as lost as anybody else. Hard saying, who can hear it, but it's the truth. So, he must decrease and I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is of the earth is earthly and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. Notice, 
He says it twice. He opens with, Him from above is above all. And he closes that verse in the same way. You think there's a message for me to get there? That Jesus is above all things. So, we've got some scripture. And the book of Hebrews, a wonderful book about Jesus and all that he's above. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, he's above the prophets. God spake in the prophets in the old times, but today he speaks by his Son. In chapter 1, verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, Jesus is above the angels. In chapter 3, verse 3, he's above Moses. For this man was counted more worthy of more glory than Moses. He's greater than Abraham in chapter 7 of Hebrews, verse 6. But he whose descent is not counted from them received tithes of Abraham. And without all contradiction, the less is blessed of the better. He was better than Abraham. He was better than Aaron, chapter 7, verse 26. <clears throat> For such an high priest became us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins and then for the people. But this he did once when he offered up himself. In chapter 9, verse 9 through 12, Jesus is greater than the tabernacle. In verses 9 through 14, or 13 and 14 of chapter 9, He's greater than the sacrifices. What is God not greater than? In Ephesians, he's above all principalities and powers of the world and in the heavens as well. Christ Jesus is above all. The Bible says in Philippians 2 that God highly exalted him and given him a name above all names. This man Jesus, he's the authority. He's the king. He's the ruler. He's the overseer. He is the director. And there's not one person that does not answer to him. So you say, well, that doesn't fit me. That doesn't apply to me. Whether it's a minister or a, a, a lost person, you say the word of God, that doesn't apply here, or it doesn't apply to me. Well, I'm sorry, Jesus is above all. There's not one that's not under every shred of his authority and power. There's not one that's not subject to him. This man is above every man. <clears throat> and so, in Acts chapter 14, <clears throat> People get that high thought of their self. Well, now here is Paul and Barnabas, apostles on a missionary journey, and here they are at a pagan and an ungodly place amongst a pagan and an ungodly people. And so they heal a cripple man in verse 8. This is Acts chapter 14. They heal a cripple man, and in verse 15, you see these people are worshiping Paul and Barnabas. This is what Paul says. 
Sirs, why do you do these things? We also are men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto the living God, which made heaven and earth and sea and all things that are therein. Paul says, look, I am just like you are. I'm a man of like passions just like you. Why would you fall and worship me? So where ought our attention be? It ought to be on Jesus and on His work. He is above all. He's over all. He's in all. And He's through all. He that is of the earth is earthly. So those of the earth, you know, those men of like passions, they speak of earthly things. But he that's from heaven, our Lord Jesus Christ, his word is above the word of those on the earth. And, you know, whether it's mom and dad or uh, grandparents or a pastor or deacons or the entire church, if they say that I believe you're saved and you're all right, and yet the Holy Ghost through the gospel reveals to me that I've never been saved. Know this, His words above all. His words true. Let everybody else be a liar. In verse 32, And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth. And no man receiveth his testimony. So we covered this earlier in, in John chapter 3. But he testifieth to be a witness that means to give testimony. And no man receiveth his testimony. So that word means evidence given. So this man Jesus, who is above all, he's come down from heaven and became a man like you and I. And he's testifying of these heavenly things. Now what's he testifying of? Well, we've got a whole half of this chapter here where he's talking of being lost and a need of salvation. But, man's not receiving, they're not believing the testimony. Well, nobody believes. Well, there's a reason that nobody believes. Man cannot believe it by his own strength and by his own power. Outside of the working of the Holy Ghost, man cannot come to the gospel and be saved. It is impossible that it be that way. We ought not be surprised that no man receiveth the testimony of the Lord Jesus. They didn't receive it from his own mouth. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I believe we can see a little explanation of this. Verse 9, As it is written, I have not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him, even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. So this hidden testimony that God has spoken, man can't see that. Man can't see it because he's carnal 
and because in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost. God tells us why people don't believe. It's because they're lost. And the devil has blinded their minds. Now there's nothing you can do that's going to cause them to see. Enticing them to an altar, that don't help them to see the true need, that they're lost and need to be saved. Only the Holy Ghost can reveal those hidden things. Only God, through the Spirit and through preaching, can reveal it. <clears throat> so, in 1 John chapter 5, verse 9, you receive the witness of men. The witness of God is greater. His word is above all. So if, if we don't receive His word, we've rejected the greatest testimony that there is. And in verse 33 of John chapter 3, He that hath received His testimony hath set to His seal that God is true. So now, let's get this whole picture together then. So Jesus, who's above all, who is the Son of God, who God's placed as the chief authority, is bearing witness through His Word and by the Spirit speaking the truth. Now if I do not receive the evidence that He's given, then I'm calling Him a liar. He says in 1 John, right there where we were just quoting, chapter 5, verse number 10, he that believeth on the Son of God hath the witness in himself. He that believeth not God hath made him a liar, because he believeth not the record, that's evidence given, that God gave, testified, of his Son. So when I do not receive the Word of God, when I won't believe what God says, I'm saying that God is wrong, that God is lying, that what he's saying about me is not true, and I'm right over top of him. Now, what kind of reaction should that garner from God? We've made God out to be a liar. But those that believe, you know all that they're doing, that's not some great thing. They're saying that what God's saying is true. Now we all know that what God says is true. That's the funny thing about this. It's the revelation of the blindness that Satan has over men's head. Here's a man or a woman that readily admits that what God says is the absolute truth. And God says they're lost and they don't believe that. God says you must have the Spirit. They don't believe that. God says you'll have a testimony. They don't believe that. God says the kingdom of God ought to be growing. They don't believe that. But God's true. We believe everything God says. See, that's how blind it is. They say one thing, and yet they're calling God a liar in another regard. That don't fit me. That don't apply to me. See how powerful Satan is. What lies that he's told people and that people believe. Well, we're trying to reach them with a the gospel. Well, that's, that's exactly what we ought to do. We ought to try to reach them by preaching the gospel. Not by reaching my hand and enticing them to an altar. Preaching the word. 
And if God sees fit to reveal the Son in him, then God's going to do that work. That's not my work. Getting him to an altar is not my work. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So, in verse 34, For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son, and hath given all things into his hand. So what's John doing? Well, to answer this question, he's exalting Jesus. He's showing his disciples, look, this man is the one you need to look to. John is about to have his head cut off. John's ministry is going to end. He's not going to be the one to save them. Jesus is going to be the one that's going to save them. Point to Jesus. So, <clears throat> he that God sent speaketh the words of God. You can rest assured that what God says is true because the Spirit is not given by measure unto him. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. So in, in Genesis 41, I believe we can see a little picture of this. Here's Joseph down in Egypt. Pharaoh has recognized the power that God has put on Joseph's life and the wisdom that God has given to Joseph. And Pharaoh, in verse 43, made him to ride in the second chariot which he had. And they cried before him, Bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh. And without thee shall no man lift up his hand or foot in all the land of Egypt. Now Joseph had no authority before. But Pharaoh has now given him the authority to speak. So was Jesus a man? As John the Baptist is speaking to his disciples here, he says Jesus is a man. He looks like me and you. He appears to be me and you. But know this, he's not just a regular man. This man is God in the flesh. And God himself has given him the authority over everything. Now Joseph was not Pharaoh. Jesus was not God the Father. But he was God's man on the earth. Now I realize that's a confusing thing to try to think about. But as John's disciples looked, Jesus looked like a man just like anybody else. But he was God's man that God had placed over all things and he had authority that nobody else had. And in Matthew 28, after his resurrection, Jesus says, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. There's no one going to stand up against this God. Who ought we to be looking to? The one the Father delights in. The Son, Jesus Christ. So here we're going to end this chapter with a division. There's going to be a division made between life and death. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God abideth on him. Very, very simple. 
Boy, this is so overcomplicated in the mind of man today. Because as they begin to weigh up, they've got to judge good works, evil works, how much good we've done, how much church we've went to, uh, how good a family member we've been. A lot of weighing up going on to determine whether we're going to heaven or not. Well, I believe they got in, they did this and they did that, and they could quote this many verses. At way too overcomplicated. The bottom line is this. They believe in the Son of God and they've been born again. They've got life. And if they've not believed in the Son of God and they've not been born again, they're just as lost as anybody else in the world. We don't need to worry about the good works and the evil works. We've all been evil. We've all done some good, as man would say. And yet, we all need to be saved. So forget about works. Have you ever been born again? That's what John is going to wrap up this chapter and his discourse with his disciples. If you do not believe and you've never been born again, the wrath of God abideth on you. Is that not exactly what Jesus just told Nicodemus earlier in this chapter? That you must be born again. And John the Baptist He's preaching the exact same message that you must be born again. What ought men be preaching today that you must be born again? Well, I believe so-and-so's been born again. Well, that's well and good of you that you believe that. That does not change the gospel. Outside of the Holy Ghost and a work of God in the heart, the wrath of God is abiding on every individual. In Matthew chapter 11, how sure is this? Matthew 11 verse 27, All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son but the Father. Neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he to whomsoever the Son will reveal him. Who knows God the Father? Only those that the Son of God has revealed him to. There is nobody else on the face of the earth that knows God the Father outside of the Son, Jesus Christ. Now that's the gospel. And those in Revelation chapter 20, you talk about the wrath of God abiding on them. Whosoever, this is verse 15, we all know this verse. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. You see, that is the division of life and death. We've either been born again the kingdom of God planted within our heart and growing or the wrath of God abides on us. I hope the word of God's been a help to you. I feel like we didn't do that justice in the least bit. But we're thankful for the opportunity to share it with you. Hope you have a wonderful week in the Lord. Hope the Lord blesses your services tonight, this Wednesday night. We love you and pray for us.